Aloha! You are listening to Inside the Desert Oasis Room, episode number 202. This episode is sponsored by the Tiki Bar T-Shirt Club, where their monthly t-shirt designs pay tribute to a Polynesian bar or restaurant from days long past. Each design is available for a limited time and will never be produced again. For the collectors out there, be sure to check out their subscription program, where they offer a discounted 3, 6, or 12-month plan, or you can always buy shirts one at a time. For more information and to check out this month's shirt, visit tikibartshirtclub.com. If you have a product, service, or event that you'd like to bring attention to, we can help. This podcast reaches thousands of listeners in over 100 countries every week. Imagine hearing your ad in this spot, just like you're hearing this one right now. Sponsor an episode and get the exposure you deserve. For more information, go to DesertOasisRoom.com and click on Services. Today we are joined by Ed Hamilton. Ed is an author, importer, and world-renowned authority on the spirit of rum. He's also the founder of the Ministry of Rum and the Hamilton brand of fine rums made in distilleries all over the Caribbean. Learn about how he went from being a mechanical engineer making actuators for airplanes to becoming one of the world's foremost experts on island spirits. His collaboration with Jeff Barry, the Florida Rum Society, and more. This episode starts with Ed's symposium from this month's Orange County USBG Tiki Night at Tiki Farm. And from there, we transition to a personal one-on-one, where Ed gives us a deep dive on rum, his thoughts on the future of rum, and what's in store for his Hamilton brand of products for 2022. As always, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did bringing it to you. If you enjoy this podcast, please stop by DesertOasisRoom.com and click on the tip jar. Every tip or donation, no matter the size, is very much appreciated and helps keep this podcast coming to you every week. And if you'd like to follow our adventures, check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Polynesian Pop, where we chronicle events, bars, travel spots, cocktail tutorials, and more. Alrighty, let's get into this. Make yourself a tea punch and join us inside the Desert Oasis Room as we learn all about rum with our friend, Ed Hamilton. please. Uh, We are extremely honored to have the man, the myth, the legend, the Ministry of Rum. And uh, he's going to come here and talk a tiny bit about rum, educate everybody on it, uh, talk a little bit about Hamilton's rum. Ed Hamilton, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen. This afternoon, Benny asked me if I had a picture I wanted to use, and I said, I don't give a shit, I don't care. Is that your son? That one's from the archives. Does anybody know where that picture was taken? 
No, they don't give you rum in prison. <laughs> that is a small bar, and I should know the name of it, in uh, Chicago. And hopefully by the end of the night, I'll remember where it was. That was uh, Paul McGee's bar before he opened Three Dots and a Dash. And uh, they asked me to do something, and I showed up there one afternoon. And I was growing my hair out for uh, Locks of Love. And I thought, you know, what's what can I do? I got a job that I can do whatever the hell I want to do. I can show up almost naked if I want to, but I don't have to cut my hair. I can grow a beard. I can do whatever I want. Why don't I grow my hair out and donate it? And so I did, and uh, really happy about that. So I'm at Hamilton. Um, how many of you love what you're doing? And how many of you hate what you're doing? And, and how many of you don't really know what you're doing? So I got really lucky in 1978. I know some of you weren't born in 1978. But in 1978, I had graduated from college, and uh, I was selling uh, electromagnetic actuators that went on bombs and things like cruise missiles. Back then, we didn't call them weapons, weapons of mass destruction. We had names like tomahawk and cruise missiles and stuff. And it was basically a way to kill people at great distances anonymously. You didn't have to look at them. You just sent them a bomb for 3,000 miles away. And I was on a plane, and my boss says, Ed, you don't seem happy. Me? Ed, not happy? What do you mean, Fred? Fred was my boss. He was about my size. And uh, I was sitting in the middle seat of an airplane, and he says, Ed, what do you want to be doing in five years? Write it down on a piece of paper right now. So I got, a, got up, climbed over him, kicked him a couple of times just because I could. Got my bag down, got a piece of paper, wrote, go sailing. I grew up in Florida, been sailing all my life. So I wrote, go sailing. He says, don't show me. Now write down five things you're going to do starting today to make that happen. I wrote, I quit. Gave him the piece of paper, and he goes, no, 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 no. You, you, no, you can't quit. And every time he said, you can't quit, I put my arm around him, gave him a headlock, kissed him on the top of the head, and yelled, I love you, man. People didn't do shit like that on airplanes in 1978. Immediately, the hostess came over, airline hostess, and said, everything okay here? And I said, no, actually, uh, we're short two more scotches. We were both on expense accounts, and I was the younger guy, so I put it on my account. And we drank to wherever we were going. And over the next three days, uh, I quit my job. He wouldn't let me just fly home. He made me stick it out. But five years and two months after that, I was back in Florida, bought a 38-foot sailboat. I took a little detour through LA. I was living in Chicago at the time. Took a little detour through LA, and ended up in Taiwan. And uh, there's a lady here, Caroline, who, long story short, seduced me to come live with her in Orange County. 
But I met her years ago in Taiwan when I was building yachts with her late husband. Yes, you can applaud. She's, she's a wonderful woman. Um, her late husband, Wendell Rankin, was building passport yachts in Taiwan. And I ended up in Taiwan working for another company, and then that company went bankrupt. But I had a plan. I was going sailing. I ended up hopping on another boat, sailed down to through the uh, Philippines, got to Singapore, got hired off a bar stool, and ended up working on the oil rigs all over Asia. Um, ran some boats that I had n absolutely no business running, but they didn't have any other engineers that could speak English that could do the job, so I did it. But five years and two months later, I was back in the States, bought a boat, went to the Caribbean for 20 years. And you might wonder, how do you support yourself sailing in the Caribbean for 20 years? It's easy. I smuggled everything but drugs. And when I say everything, it was everything except, well, I didn't smuggle Chinese people. Uh, there was a market for that. I didn't smuggle humans or drugs. But everything else there was to smuggle, I smuggled. And... Then in 2005, a guy in Chicago, or 2003, I was in Chicago, and a guy said, was drinking some rum I had, and he says, I've got to have this on my boat. He had a 90-foot yacht, and he says, I've got to have this. I'm going to give you, come, come have lunch with me on Tuesday. I'm going to give you the money to start an import company, and we'll be friends. Sure. What could go wrong with that? Well, I ended up starting an import company and uh, started with Rum Agricole. How many of you have not heard of Rum Agricole? A few. In 19 or in 2023, nobody had heard of Rum Agricole. And on the West Coast, nobody even knew where Martinique was. Because how many of you can name five islands of Hawaii? Right? Everybody. How many of you know where Hawaii is? How many of you know where Martinique is? Yeah, we're on the West Coast, a couple of people. So anyway, I'm bringing in French rum, and uh, I'm, it was a struggle. But bartenders came to me and said, hey, there's this tiki thing, and we don't have a black Jamaican rum with character. In 20 years in the islands, I'd met every distiller in the Eastern Caribbean, and I'd written some books and had a website called Ministry of Rum. So I went back to Jamaica and talked to people that were running distilleries, specifically Worthy Park. Uh, by that time, Joy Spence, the master blender at Appleton, was a good friend of mine. Uh, we were on first-name basis and ran into each other different conventions and things. But they were owned by a big company, and she says, Ed, I'd love to work with you and sell you rum, but they won't let me. So I went to Worthy Park, which was even better, because they made their own rum from their own molasses, from their own sugar, which was all on the property. When you stand in front of the distillery at Worthy Park, there's the sugar fields, there's the sugar mill, here's the distillery, and here's the rum. So the rum in your glass is a blend that I did uh, a few years later after I listened to bartenders, and they said, yeah, what? Well, Okay, I, well, I ended up buying a black a rum from them, ended up coloring it. Took a couple of years to get it right. And then I was importing some rum from St. Lucia in barrels. 
But when the barrels were empty, what do I do with it? Well, I filled it with Jamaican rum from Worthy Park. Just said, okay, guys, at the uh, blending operation, the bottler, the bottler's in upstate New York. So just fill those barrels up with the stuff from uh, Jamaica. And about a year later, I said, you know, I knew it was going to taste good at some point. But a year later, it was pretty good. Yeah, okay, well, okay, blend in a little bit more of the light rum from Jamaica, put it back in the barrel, let it sit another six months, and basically that's what you end up with there. But listening to bartenders, I'm not going to come out with an 80-proof gold rum from Jamaica with no coloring or anything, right? I'd be laughed out. So I did it at 90-proof. And then I had to come up with a name. Well, it's not black. It's not white. It's blonde. How about that? Blonde. So this is 90-proof blonde rum. Starts out in uh, Worthy Park Estate as a blend of light, very light, and heavy rums. It's the same base rum that goes into the Jamaican Hamilton, Jamaican Gold, Jamaican Black, but there's no coloring to added to this and no sugar. So enjoy that. One of the things that I noticed in my first foray through the islands, because I knew I couldn't just smuggle everything that I could get my hands on forever without getting in caught, getting caught or going to jail or getting in trouble or something. But I got this idea of writing a book on rum in about 93. And I went down through the islands and I found 35 distilleries and 175 different rums in 1993. Now at the time I had connections in Chicago. I went back in 95, 96 to write a book. And the biggest liquor store in America at that time was Sam's in Chicago. There were seven rums on the shelf. There was a Mount Gay, a Myers. Uh, there were a couple of Bacardi. There was a Lemon Heart fresh colored rum, the most honest label I've ever seen in my life. I wish I had a picture of them all, but I didn't have a camera. And I didn't have a phone. There, nobody had a phone in, with a camera on it in 1997. I did make some mental notes of it. Uh, there was The other rum was Stubbs, white rum from uh, Australia, which we don't see anymore. But none of those 175 rums had any sugar in them. I didn't run into a sugared rum until I got to Venezuela. And I found uh, Santa Teresa 1796. And it was sweet. I loved it. And then I realized, that's why I like it. It's sweet. It's aged. It's sweet sweetened with sugar from the estate. And then there was another one, uh, Diplomatico, and it had all kinds of flavor, the Reserva Exclusiva. Part of the reason I fell in love with it was I could buy the Reserva Exclusiva for 60 cents a bottle in Polomar, Venezuela, put it on my boat, take it to Puerto Rico and sell it for 10 bucks a bottle. So, guy's gotta do what he's gotta do, right, on a boat? <laughs> it sure beats the hell out of getting a job. But it wasn't until later, and, and at the time I asked the distillers, I said, why are you sweetening this? And they said, well, we've got other rums that aren't sweetened, like the Diplomatico uh, Reserva or the Añejo, and that was my favorite of the bunch. But people love that fancy label in Puerto Rico. And there was another one that came in a little uh, leather pouch it uh, imported by Diageo. Now it was for a little while. It's gone now. Uh, Pampero. Now that one wasn't sweetened either. 
They had others that were, but that, that one didn't have any sugar in it, and it was really good. I could buy that in the leather pouch. It was only a 70 centiliter bottle, not a 750, so 700. So, you know, just a miniature less. But that was a buck and a half with the pouch, 90 cents without the pouch. So I'd buy 15, 20 of them, or 30 or 40 with the pouch if I had some money. And then I'd buy a bunch more without the pouch for the rest of us to drink, friends to drink. And I'd get to Puerto Rico. Those were worth 20 bucks a piece. And uh, it was a little island off the coast of Puerto Rico where people would go for the weekends if they had boats. And uh, they, when I would show up, they would come by and we'd do a little barter business. Your money for my rum, and everything worked out. But I didn't see really sweetened rums start to hit the U.S. market until 2007, 2006, 2007. And uh, one of the rums I'm sure many of you remember was the El Dorado three-year-old. Remember when that hit? That was the hottest thing in town. Everybody wanted it. And they had El Dorado five-year-old. And then they got smart. We're going to appeal to a bigger market, and we're going to sweeten it. And then everybody's going to love it, except the people that built the brand, right? Except the people that really liked it. So I'm not on a crusade against sugar. You want to put sugar in your rum, go for it. I don't care. When you make cocktails, how many of you use sugar in cocktails? <laughs> the rest of you are liars. It's OK. It's OK. I've dealt with liars. I've dealt with a lot of liars in my life. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm working really hard, and I'm getting better at it. I used to just look at people when they lied to me and say, bullshit. <laughs> now I, I'm training myself, I'm old, I'm working really hard at it. Now I try to say, really? Can you tell me a little more about this? I've never tasted a rum this sweet that didn't have any sugar in it. But I think we all are aware of the problems in the tequila industry a decade or so before, where it got so bad uh, that they, the government said, hey, we're going to put gnomes on the bottles, and then we're going to say where it's from. And we're going to try to maintain the credibility of the tequila industry before it's completely trashed. And they did a pretty good job of it. I mean, certainly there are people that are cheating on it. You know, there always will be. But they did a really good job of it. Part of the challenge in the rum industry is we have so many different countries importing so many different products into, into America and around the world. And there is no uniform uh, group that has the best interest of the rum industry as its goal, unlike tequila or scotch whiskey or American whiskey. Can you imagine if they put sugar in whistle pig? No, oh, you can't even imagine it, right? The, the good old boys down in Kentucky and Tennessee would go over to Dave Perkins and say, Dave, we've liked you for a long time, but boy, you're screwing up. We'd like to like you a little longer, and we'd like you to live a little longer, but you know, that just ain't right, boy. And that's the way it is. But in the rum industry, we're dealing with so many different things. So anyway, this is uh, rum without sugar. I do add sugar to a couple of my rums, or at least one. 
my pimento dram, I add sugar. It's a liqueur. It says right on the label, liqueur. When it says liqueur, there's sugar in it. You can bet on it. But uh, what I have found is listen to the bartenders. Everything I've done has been a result of bartenders coming to me. The black, the gold, I hadn't even thought of. And I did a black, I did a pre-production, I took it to a bartender in Seattle. He says, can I make a daiquiri? No, I'm gonna be the dick that comes into your bar, brings you a sample of something that smells really good, looks really good, but no, you can't use it in a cocktail. Of course you can try it in a cocktail. He puts it in a cocktail and he says, Ed, I love everything about this, but in our champagne coupe, when we make our daiquiri, it looks like somebody's shit in the glass. <laughs> can you make this in a gold rum? I said, sure, I'm Ed Hamilton. I can do anything you want, almost but I made it black, I can use a different caramel and make it gold, so I made it a gold rum. The gold's never sold as well as the black, but the black is my best-selling rum of all my rums. It's amazing to me. Uh, the fact that it's only 93 proof might have something to do with that. A lot of the other ones are higher than that. But by listening to the bartenders, I did a gold. The gold still sells a lot of rum, more than I expected it to. But the Navy strength, was a combination of things that bartenders said. We've got to have a Navy strength that our customers can drink. And then more recently, uh, Beach Bumberry asked me for a zombie blend. And I know it all sounds simple, but that took two and a half years. Two and a half years. Can you imagine two and a half years of tasting overproof rums and then getting on the phone and trying to talk coherently? And that's the easy part. And then the next day, you have to try to write down what you talked about the day before and then convey that to the people that are blending in upstate New York. So that's the story. Uh, thank you all. First, thank Holden. Thank you, Holden. Thank you, Benny, for finding me and... Uh, asking me to come talk to you guys for a few minutes. Uh, it's the least I can do, stand around, drink some rum, and talk for a few minutes. I mean, So I want to move right along so Whistlepig can do their uh, presentation, but I'll be around afterwards. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Thank you very much. All right, Ed Hamilton, everyone. Hello, what are you selling? <laughs> How you doing, Ed? Oh, yeah. Just a second. I'm almost ready. Okay, no problem. Oh, it sounds like sounds like I'm I'm missing out on something here. What what are you making? A daiquiri. Oh, I love it. You're not making a tea punch. No, I'm not, because I just got some fresh lines, a whole bunch of them. Okay. And uh, I'm still working. Oh, you're you're on the clock. Oh, I love it. So you're playing hooky for me. Well, well, yeah, I'm working. I've uh, got a few things to take care of. Got a container coming in tomorrow, and some other stuff. And you know, this is this job is not as many people think it is. It's uh, you know, a lot of stuff you got to do every day. Oh, I bet. I mean. 
for a lot of us, I think being surrounded by rum all the time is living the dream, but it's still a job, I'm sure, for you. And I think I read somewhere that you buy tens of thousands of liters of rum at a time. Is that correct? Um, yeah. Well, the biggest tanks right now are 20,000 liters. But 20,000 uh, liters. Yeah, you know, a lot of rum. You've you got to buy it in big chunks or uh, you pay too much. Yeah, yeah. And it's a business. I mean, you can't just be buying that rum just to sit on it. So um, I imagine right. you that. you got to sell it. Yeah, imagine that there's more work behind the fun of of what we think it is when we're surrounded by rum all the time. But let me start by saying thank you for joining the podcast. I appreciate you coming on. I've been wanting to have you as a guest for a long, long time. And so I'm excited to finally sit down with you and talk with you. Well, you found me. Yeah, it was a lot of fun chatting with you when we were at Tiki Farm a few weeks back. And... Um, you know, there's so much about you online and so many questions that have been asked. And I'm going to ask you some of these things that have been you've been asked before because I feel like for our listeners, my listener is not really so much rum-centric as they are more tiki-centric. And believe it or not, they are not one and the same. So oh, I know that. So, you know, there are tiki people and then there are rum people. Yeah. And they do not – well, they overlap – but they are not the same demographic. They're not the same person. Uh, a lot of people, their rum drinkers, don't appreciate how many, and I, I don't ask me to name them because I can't. I'm not a bartender. But how many tiki drinks don't have any rum in them? Yeah, that, that is surprising sometimes, even for me. And I've been a tiki guy for a long, long time. <laughs> but for our listeners that are not familiar, I want to start with your background because I, I, I think it's a really fascinating story uh, that you were an engineer at one point in your life, and I believe you were what making actuators for airplanes. Is that correct? Yeah, actuators for airplanes and uh, military equipment, bombs, cruise missiles, stuff like that. Uh, okay. right after the Vietnam War, and my boss convinced me, fortunately, that I am not a good employee, but he didn't <laughs> convince me, he told me, okay. and uh, he convinced me to, to maybe find some other line of work, and uh, I quit on the spot, basically, yeah. so yeah. Well, I was lucky. Well, I, 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 I explore this thing about the butterfly effect, and I, and I find this really fascinating because if not for that particular moment in time, and we'll get a little bit into that, um, we wouldn't be where we are today because of what you do. From there, you went into sailing the Caribbean, which that is also another living the dream kind of situation for a lot of people. Yeah, I was lucky. Uh, part of quitting my job was my boss asked me, what do you want to be doing in five years? Mm -hmm. Write it down on a piece of paper. And, you know, we've all heard these things and read these things. You know, if you, what are your goals, your life goals, write them down. So I, I was, we were on an airplane and I got out, out of my seat. I was in the middle seat, climbed up over the luggage rack and got my bag down, my sample bag and opened it and got, got some paper out of it, sat back down and kicked my boss a couple of times as I, as the opportunity availed itself. And I wrote down, go sailing. And he says, okay, now write down five things you're going to do to make that happen starting today. 
and I wrote, I quit. <laughs> but I kept that in mind, and I managed in five years and two months to have been around the world, mm. uh, worked on oil rigs and all kinds of things, and ships and built yachts in Taiwan, and got back to Florida, got down to the Keys, found a 38-foot sailboat that I could almost afford, and bought it, fixed it up, and went sailing for 20 years. And, I love it. Uh, you know, it sounds like a dream. But in my working days as an engineer, I remember going into cubicles where there were, I want to, I want to say hundreds, more than 100 engineers. And I would see a, a fair percentage of them. You know, it was like five or six, seven, eight percent, maybe 10 percent. But these people had all kinds of interests, flying and sailing and things. And there was one particular poster that I always remembered seeing. Uh, I see it kind of in my dreams today of the deck of a sailboat. And there's a mountain island uh, mm. probably in the South Pacific or the Caribbean. And it was, you know, beyond the horizon. And this sailboat is sailing towards the island. And I thought, my God, I don't want to wait till I'm too old to do this. Yeah, that's what I want to be doing. I want to be sailing and not sitting here in office yeah. dreaming about it. How old were you when you did all that? Uh, I was 23 when I quit my job. Okay. So I was only a couple of years out of school. Yeah. Uh, I graduated early, but uh, I didn't last in the corporate world very long. I was 50 when I started this uh, business of importing rum. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm old. So Well, you, you know, the thing is that you, at, at least at an early age, you already started figuring out what you wanted to do because a lot of us trudge on. I'm in my 50s, and I trudged on for decades not being happy doing what I was doing. And, you know, sometimes people go their whole lives doing that. Right. And um, it, it sounds like early on you were already kind of working towards that because of your boss. Yeah, I was. And I had always kind of kept it in mind to uh, do something useful. And I think I understood in college that uh, I probably wasn't going to get along with engineering. I, I loved engineering. I loved figuring things out and, mm -hmm. and solving problems. But one of my professors, in fact, the head of the, the engineering department called me into his office one day and he said, you know, you've got to do something uh, good with your engineering degree. And, you know, I hope that you don't go off and design, decide to go make sailboat sales. And I thought, my God, yeah. you have no idea what contributions are going to be made in the next 20 years on sailboat sales. Well, I was going to say, well, how is that not doing something good? I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah, they, they had a different idea of engineering. I, I suppose, I suppose. But, you know, today we see the America's cup boat. I don't know if you're familiar with some yeah, of those yeah, boats, yeah. but that's the, the first thing I thought of. You can get boats up on hydrofoils. Sure. And a big part of the reason you can do that is the sales, the efficiency of the sales. But I thought, you know, you guys, there's a lot more to engineering than what you guys are doing or what you're thinking. Yeah. And uh, then another, most of the professors were 
what I would call really cool guys. They were, uh, this was in the 70s in Florida. And so they had the, uh, one of the, and I don't know which one it was, one of the uh, uh, space capsules had had a fire and a few people died. Mm -hmm. But, and then they shut down the space program or curtailed it significantly. So most of my professors were ex-astronauts, the PhD guys that were, uh, really, really sharp guys. And so instead of the usual problems, we had things to look at, like you've got a space capsule that's rotating and there's two guys in there and one side has got the sun and one side doesn't. And so the guy with the sun, when you don't have an atmosphere, he's going to get really hot mm-hmm. and the other guy's going to get really cold. So you've got to rotate this thing but you can't spin it too fast or they'll both get sick. Right. But you've got to design fins so it'll absorb heat and then give it up on the other side so you get some kind of equilibrium of temperature inside and you can't rotate it too fast. And I thought, yeah, there's a practical problem. You know, we've worked mm-hmm. on And so we spent, you know, four months or something working, looking at, uh, thermodynamics and heat transfer of fins and all these things. Another one of my favorite uh, engineering questions, and it became became something that we dealt with for a whole uh, semester, was you've uh, fallen out of your spaceship and you've ended up, you survived and you ended up on an island and you got a bottle of rum Mm -hmm. and you put it in the sand how fast is the alcohol going to evaporate? And as that alcohol evaporates, the level in the bottle goes down. So you're going to have some amount of alcohol coming up to the top. And then as the wind blows, it's going to blow it away. And then you've got temperature variations between uh, the hot and the sun. You don't have a cork. You can't shove anything else in there. That was part of the criteria because uh-huh. we all said, well, uh-huh. you just shove a piece of coconut shell or something in there. Right. Uh, but uh, the color of the glass, it's going to heat it and cool it. And, and all these things, it was basically an engineering problem around a bottle of rum that I had no right. idea that I'd later in life be uh, <laughs> working with 24 hours a day. That's interesting. It's like, I, I thought you were going to say something like, well, it's not a problem if I just drink it all right now. Well, you know, of course, some smart ass <laughs> came up with that solution, but, it, you know, then uh, you fail the class. Okay, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And the idea was you don't have a cork, but what can you do to preserve as much of the alcohol as possible? Uh-huh. And one of the things is build uh, you know, shade it. Don't let it sit in the sun, of course. And then uh, you want to keep the wind from blowing on it. But then the problem, you know, the problem always changes as you figure yeah, things yeah, out. Yeah. And then, okay, we want to get it down to a certain level at a certain ABV because it starts out too high of ABV. You can't drink it. Yeah. So when we get it down to a certain ABV, how much is going to be left in the bottle? Oh, interesting. Wow. So it sounds to me like these engineering questions that you were dealing with in your youth end up being something that you have to deal with in the real world in your adulthood, 
right? I can't imagine that this stuff is not something that you're applying today with what you're doing today. Well, it's not those kind of things, although not not those uh, specific challenges, it, but with the, with ABV levels and with um, uh, evaporation and loss and things like that. Um, right. So I'm today I'm minimizing evaporation, but one of the things that happens, for example, I'm blending Demerara rum and Jamaican rum together, uh-huh. and it tastes very different than the individual parts. And then when you put it together, it changes different today than it will change, than it will taste tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. And my 151, for example, is, it starts out at 100, I get it at 154 proof, and and then I dilute it down to uh, 86. Well, when I dilute it, it takes five days to dilute it. And then the question is, well, why? And how do you know how long? Well, you know how long because you do a bunch of different tests. Right. But the reason that it tastes differently is because the congeners in the different esters in the in the bottle of rum, and rum is just a, a soup of esters, uh, different esters that we like to drink, but they, they give it the flavor and character and all mm-hmm. that. But the water that we add is attracted to different esters depending on uh, their molecular weight. And so the heavier esters are going to attract the water faster, but they're going to push the other esters out of solution and they're going to evaporate. And so if we just dump water in quickly, it's going to taste flat and dull. Right. Wow. Wow. And this is so scientific. We've experienced this and we've seen it and we've done it. Uh, you know, and it's one of the demonstrations I, I do all the time with bartenders. Right, right. But then, if you can't explain it credibly and convince them that you know what you're talking about, you don't have any credibility. Yeah. You know, you're just another yeah. guy with a bottle of rum. Yeah, yeah. Hey, bud, you want to buy a bottle of rum? Yeah. <laughs> but if I can tell you about it and explain it and tell you where it came from and why it is the way it is, I have a lot better chance of... Uh, well, A, getting a better product from a distillery and then bottling it and all that. And to me, a big part of the success of the business that I've had so far is I spent years in the islands visiting all these distilleries and learning what sure. makes a good rum and what, why not-so-good rums are the way they are. And you have to start with a good product. Right. So you've got to find a good source. And then even at that source, you've got to know what to buy. Um, even some of my favorite rums, I've been offered other things. And I go, no, 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 no. So uh, how, how do you evaluate? Like, what's your process when, you, when you're going through all that? Oh, the process. It is a process. Uh, well, the first thing I do at a distillery is I taste a few things Mm -hmm. and then I would take them back to my boat and taste them again. And it's amazing how many times once you've walked a couple of miles in the tropical heat and you finally get to a distillery and then you uh, go through the process, you know, the cane crushing, if it's a, an agricultural distillery or uh, you walk by the fermentation tanks and listen to, listen to them tell you what they're doing there. Mm -hmm. 
and then you finally get to the Rick House, or the uh, they don't call them Rick Houses in the Caribbean, with the the aging cellar or aging uh, area barn, typically. You go inside there, and it's cool. You're in the shade. Mm-hmm. There's some evaporation, so it's cool. And then they give you a little sample of rum. Well, I guarantee when you taste that, that is the best rum you've ever tasted. Mm-hmm. But you're prepped for it. You're ready. Your mouth is already watering by the time you walk in that building. Sure. And then it's cool, and it's like a, and it's calm and quiet. It's like a cathedral, and all these barrels absorb the sound. And so it's quiet. Right. And you're away from all the noise and, you know, the machinery and the pumps and tractors and everything else that's going on outside. And you're transported into another dimension. And then you get that sip of rum. It's in the 120 to 140 proof range. Okay. You take a sip of that and then you take a sip of water and then you take another sip and it's great. When you get it back to your boat and you take a sip and you've got other things to compare it to, it changes. It changes, yeah. yeah. And then you have to look at it more, you know, well, you look at it differently. Maybe you're making cocktails with it or whatever you're doing. But when I get a sample of rum and I'm looking to uh, blend something or, or buy something, I get a sample, I pour a little bit in a glass I'll smell it, smell the glass from the top to the mm-hmm. bottom, and I pretty much know I've got a good idea of what I'm looking at before mm-hmm. I get it. But I look for the depth of character, uh, the complexity of it. Does it have a different smell or aroma at the top of the glass than the bottom of the glass? And I tip the glass on its side, mm. so I'm smelling from the top edge to the bottom edge. Obviously, I'm not smelling the bottom of the glass because you wouldn't get much from that right but from the top edge down to the lower edge and see how much does that change or is it uniform now if it's a white rum uh that is designed to be fairly neutral uh you you won't get much diversity there but you get something like uh port morant uh i've got a bottle here on my desk 13 year old port morant pot still rum it's pretty complex and you're going to get a big difference but just because it's a port morant 13 year old rum doesn't mean it's good so then i taste it and i put it at arm's length and you know i'm tall i've got long arms so i put it at arm's length and lean back in my chair and look at that and taste it take a sip of water and does that glass invite me to come have another sip Hmm. Or does it say, you know, Ed, that's enough? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to myself all of the times that that's happened to me, and, um, and it's very clear in my head which ones I enjoyed and thought, oh, I want more of that. Um, I've never done that smell test though from the top of the glass to the bottom of the glass. I'm gonna have to give that a shot. But you did say something about. Uh, aged rums when you say like well just because it's staged doesn't mean that it's good uh, tell me more about that because I, I I tend to agree with that I think sometimes you can overage a rum would, would, what are your thoughts on that well yeah you can overage it and then you just get a woody a mouthful of woody yeah yeah stuff like chewing on old charcoal yeah 
you know, that's one thing that I don't like. Um, and I find that typically, you know, it, well, it varies on how it's aged and all that. Um, a good example is the Nissan 15 and 18 year old rums. Now, I love both of them, but Gregory and I prefer the 15 to the 18. Mm-hmm. Now, his mother goes with the 18. We can't argue with her. <laughs> you do not argue with the woman whose father started the distillery of course not. 85 years ago. <laughs> You can't. That's just, you know, protocol. Right. (laughs) But if we have a choice of which one do you want, I'll take the 15-year-old. It has more character and less wood. Mm -hmm. And it has more, when I say more character, you can discern more different flavors in it. Now, do I drink the 18-year-old? Hell yes. Sure, yeah. But I find that I drink more of the 15-year-old than I do the 18-year-old. Um, but there's an example of a rum that I import that I love. But just because it's old doesn't make it great. Um, you'll find most rums peak in the 5 to 10-year-old range, 12-year-old range, something see, like that. See, that was my thought because I found that I like some rums that are, you know, in my opinion, like, like I'll just use the Bacardi 8 for an example. I think I like the 8 better than the 12. Yeah, I haven't had the 12. Uh, I can't keep up with everything Bacardi does. But the 8, uh, I've said for years, is is and back when it was made in Bahamas, it was one of my go-to rums. And if I ever saw it for under 20 bucks, I bought it. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be real old to be good sure um on the other hand my first drink of the day typically is a uh, tea punch Mm -hmm. and that's not aged at all what are you using in your tea punch well i usually drink nissan blanc but i also drink la favorite blanc uh, those are my two go-tos, but you know I'm spoiled. I've got those two around. Sure. I also drink the Nissan, the 105, okay. 52.5 proof. That's uh, one of my favorites. I can't seem to keep that around. I run out of it all the time. Okay. And, uh, okay. So you know I, I kind of revert back to the uh, 100 proof. But if you're going to have a tea punch, it's got to be 100 proof. Okay. Okay, I'm gonna make one after this using a hundred proof. We're gonna we're gonna try that one out here inside the Desert Oasis room. I have some questions here that I've gotten from my listeners also, so I'm gonna be sprinkling some of those in. Um, some of the questions, or actually some of the things that people want me to have you tell, are and I'm, I got some of these from our friends at the Florida Rum Society, Jay Cocarulo. He says, "Hey, you gotta have him tell us the story." of how the Jamaican black and how the pot still gold came to be. Okay. So before I do that, if you're going to make a tea punch, do you have the petite con sugar cane syrup? No, I don't. (laughs) Well, then you can't make a tea punch. Okay. All right. I brought back samples of that uh, sugar cane syrup from Martinique, and it was called Dubois. And that's the syrup that everybody uses, or they use the raw sugar in Martinique that goes into that particular syrup. When I came back to the States, I assumed that I'd be able to find sugar. 
I couldn't. Okay. I, couldn't, I went all over the country. I went to Steens, Monin, Tarani, all over the place. And I would show people samples of the syrup, but everybody said no. And I said, wow, that's a shame because I'd order a thousand cases from you if you can duplicate this sugar mm-hmm. syrup. And everybody said they couldn't. So I went back to Martinique and started doing it on my own. And then uh, Dubois was the name around the the they call it the plug uh, the capsule the cap at the top of it i just went under the radar for a while because that was trademarked for something else in the u.s okay. until i could get my own uh, name on there petite con next time i see you i hope to have some petite con sugarcane syrup okay. and it'll change your tea punch and basically don't even bother making a tea punch until you can get good until syrup. i have that sugarcane syrup okay I'll take you up on that. Now now yeah, I'm intrigued. It's a whole different experience. Um, it also works really well in things like an old-fashioned because it dissolves sure. instantly. So okay. most people that are making an old-fashioned end up with some ice in the glass and there's sugar and they're trying to stir it. Well, you'll never get all the sugar to dissolve. Yeah, it never does. It never does. Yeah. But if you use a good sugarcane syrup... It dissolves instantly, and that particular grade of raw sugar adds a nice character and uh, mouthfeel to the cocktail. Okay. Okay. So, so back to the story of the Jamaican black and gold. Uh, have you heard this? I've heard this, but this is for the benefit of our listeners who haven't. <laughs> so there's there's a couple of stories that people are asking for. It's this, the, is the story of the Jamaican black and gold. And then, of course, the collaboration with Jeff Berry. Everybody wants to hear that one. Uh, Jeff Berry being a tiki guy, cocktail guy, rum guy. Um, he crosses over into both genres here. And um, I, too, am kind of, you know, I, I'm, I, don't, I don't think I know the whole story about that one. Well, let me start with the black because that was years ago. Um, I struggled and, you know, sometimes you're struggling and you don't even know you're struggling. Mm -hmm. I struggled bringing in rum agricole to the U.S. in 2005. So at that time, there was literally a handful. Well, there was one guy in the whole U.S. that knew what rum agricole was and he didn't he didn't know what it tasted like he had read about it he heard about it and that was thad vogler up in san francisco um so i was bringing in rum agricole i got the sugar and then tiki started to come around and karuba changed their label and their formulation right i remember and that was that. everybody's go-to black rum back in 2005 six mm-hmm. now, there wasn't a big demand for it you know tiki wasn't what it is today at all right right but bartenders started asking me, people like Martin Kate and others, Ed, we need a Jamaican black rum with character. You know, we've, this stuff's just black. And I said, okay, let me see what I can do. So I went down to Jamaica to the Worthy Park Estate, and I had not been there at that point. It was my first visit. Gordon Clark met me. He said, Ed, where you been? We've, we've been waiting for you. We got all, you know, we know you did the Ministry of Rum, you've got a website, and you're sailing all over the place. And I said, man, Jamaica is downwind of all the other islands, 
and it's not a great place to bring a private sailboat. Okay. There aren't a lot of good anchorages. Okay. And it's a long way from Jamaica to anywhere else. So he says, okay, we forgive you. You're here. You know, and uh, so I was looking at what rums they had available, what I could do. And we finally came, I finally decided that if I got one of their rums, got a blend of some of their rums, actually, and uh, it's two or three different, actually, it's three different rums that they make, three different marks, but they blend them. And then I would bring them, well, I would bottle it at 93 proof and color it black. Well, I couldn't color it black in Jamaica unless it was aged. Okay. And that was going to be more expensive, and then it was going to be a big pain. And I'd have to carbon filter it. Didn't really want to do that. Um, He wanted me to send labels down there, and I said, you know, I can't send you labels. Uh, The labels, I've been around enough manufacturing to know, but enough distilleries seeing piles of old labels. I said, I'm going to, if I send you labels down here, they're not going to fit your machine. And the next time I come down here, these lovely ladies over here that are putting labels on bottles are going to look over at me and go, here's that <laughs> friggin' white boy with the goddamn labels. Right. And the lovely ladies smiled at me with all their gold teeth. And Gordon <laughs> smiled and he says, yeah, Ed, you're right. Let me show you some of the labels. And he opened up a door to a room. Uh, this was not a closet. This was a room full of boxes and labels from people that had printed them and sent them to them mm-hmm. to do private rum label things mm-hmm. that didn't ever work. Okay. And I said, okay, so the only way I see to do this is ship the bulk rum to me somewhere in the U.S. and then I'll color it and I'll label it there. So it took me about three years to get through all this together. I got lucky on the caramel. I was living in Chicago at the time. Uh, a company called Sethness has an office in Chicago or outside Chicago. I contacted them through their internet website. And uh, the, the guy who's now running the company, he was, uh, his uncle was running it, but he was, uh, at that time, he was their top sales guy. Um, he and I got talking on the phone after two or three emails. Uh, he called me, and it turned out that he lived just a few blocks from where I did, mm-hmm. and he liked rum. And I said, great, bring some samples on your way home and come stop by my apartment, and let's talk about some rum. So we did, and I learned a little bit about the caramel coloring process. And I was all set on a black rum, and I didn't want anything that had – uh, GMO or high sure. sucrose uh, corn syrup in sure. it or anything sure. like that. And that's what most of their caramel contains. But they did have a sugar-based, domestic sugar-based uh, caramel. The sugar came out of Florida. I said, great, I can trace the origin of that. I know where that came from down in the Everglades. Mm-hmm. So I'll use this black well, I got some samples from Jamaica, put the thing, the black in there, the caramel coloring doesn't take much, a couple of drops, and uh, took it out to a bartender at, in Seattle and said, hey, what do you think of this as a black Jamaican rum? 
And he, he looks at it, he smells it, he says, man, this smells delicious. Can I make a drink with it? Mm-hmm. I said, sure. I'm not going to be the guy that brings you a sample and says, no, you can't taste it or, you know, you can't make a drink. So he makes a drink, makes a daiquiri with it. He hands it to me and he says, Ed, I love everything about this, except in our champagne coupe that we serve our daiquiris in, it looks like somebody shit in the glass. <laughs> I said, you know, Ben, you are absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, he says, put this, can you make this a gold rum? I said, sure. It started out clear. I made it black. I can, you know, I can get a gold tint caramel. Uh-huh. So it's a different caramel, not less. Uh, does that does that change the think. flavor at all? Like, well, the, well I, it does, but in a cocktail, you you won't notice it. Okay. What it does, the two different caramels are different viscosities, and they affect the surface tension just slightly differently. Okay. So you will smell a slight difference between the gold tint and the black tint caramel in the rum. But if you do it in water, you can't smell the difference. Okay. Okay. And in water, it tastes like water. If you, if I, you know, if we were sitting together and I put a few drops in a glass of water, you wouldn't taste it. Right. Especially in Orange County, where the water is just horrible. <laughs> um, but you have to be judi- judicious in the way you use this right, stuff. Right. Right. A little bit goes a long way. So, yeah. you know, you're old enough to. Do you remember Brill Cream? Yeah. Little dabble, do you? Yeah. I, I was going to. Because when you say caramel, col, col, colored with caramel, my first thought is, oh, that's that's so rich. I can't imagine that it wouldn't affect the flavor of the rum. And then if you're talking about the difference between the gold and the black being the viscosity, the viscosity alone seems like it's it's going to change everything. Well, what it does, so it takes one liter of caramel to color 4,000 liters of Oh, caramel. wow. So it doesn't really take a lot at all. That's that's minuscule. Yep. Little dab will do you. Wow. Two dabs will overdo you. Yeah, so yeah. So the caramel costs me about, uh, used to be about $75 to get two five-gallon jugs of caramel shipped from uh, Chicago to upstate New York where I bottle and I bottle up there because the water is really good. It's never mm-hmm. been part of municipal water supply, which is really important. So most places, uh, they're working with city water and so they've got to do all kinds of conditioning. So this sure. is deep water, well water. Um, they run it through an RO filter and a UV filter for, medical reason you know to kill a virus that may be in there but there's nothing in it i mean it's deep deep well water but when you uh add the caramel we add the caramel last it does change the viscosity just slightly Mm -hmm. but i mentioned there were three different marks of rum now jamaican rum as you know has a lot of character a lot of aroma to it sure so if you change the surface tension it acts like a sieve Okay. And it will suppress. It doesn't add anything to it, but it suppresses a little bit of the aroma. Now, if I just take a couple of glasses, one with black rum and one with gold, and don't look at the color you know, in a ceramic mug, for example, I couldn't tell you which is which. Oh, okay. But 
there is a slight difference. If you taste them, you could say, oh, yeah, this one's still a little different. But it's really hard to pick out which is the black and which is the gold. Yeah. So yeah. I drink uh, black rum, the Jamaican black, because that's what I've got right now in my kitchen with coconut water. Oh, that sounds delicious. Yeah. And I love it. And then I'll change to Jamaican gold and put it in the coconut water. It changes the color a little bit, but it really doesn't change the flavor okay. of the drink. Okay. So there was an example that I started out looking to do a black Jamaican rum. I listened to bartenders right. and they said, we need a gold rum. Now, the gold has never sold as well as the black, mm -hmm. but I ended up with two products and two options, you know, two, two opportunities to strike out when I tried to sell this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just got an order from uh, New Orleans, and it's amazing. Uh, they are one of the places that uses more gold than black. Uh, just a second. Does it come down to the vessel they're serving the cocktails in? Maybe. Uh, so they ordered twice as much gold as they did black. If they're serving it, they're serving the so drinks. If and... you're serving it in a ceramic tiki mug, right? And the recipe says black Jamaican. You're going to use black Jamaican. Sure. But, but if you're going to use it in a daiquiri and serve it in a clear champagne coupe or some other glass, yeah, I think the gold looks a lot better. Right, right, right. Now, I know that a lot of that gold rum is going to Latitude 29. Okay. And uh, Jeff is drinking it straight with a little ice. Yeah, yeah. He likes it. Yeah. Wow. But, uh, you know, there, there are a number of bars that are not tiki bars that use the gold and uh, you know it, the sales are i think it's 60 40 something like that okay. Okay. Uh, and the gold's doing well i mean there's no it'll never be canceled but uh, the black does sell better and when i get a new distributor or i know when a new tiki bar opens because they'll they'll order more of the black right right i've got some of the black in my bar so um, oh, interesting. So, so it's, it was just a matter of color. It's, it's only a matter of color, but listening to the bartenders tell me, and then having the opportunity to, to make a different color, I was really lucky because I was ready to start bottling this stuff mm -hmm. as black and I wasn't going to bottle all of it because I couldn't afford to. Uh, but I, immediately said okay i gotta do some black and gold and uh, i hadn't ordered the caramel so i ordered black and gold caramel mm -hmm. and shipped them together and that saved me a few dollars okay very cool uh so how did this collaboration with jeff come about well jeff is one of the people that years ago um pushed me to do the pimento dram Okay. He said, We've got to, I've got to have a better pimento dram in my bar. Um, you know, you got to do something. And, and it's funny how people always came to me when nobody else would do something. Uh, Ed, you got to do this. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, you know, like the Navy Strength was another one. And he said, you, you got to do this. Yeah. Said, well, 
just take some of the Jamaican black or gold and take uh, one ounce of that and half an ounce of the 151, put them together. That'll yield 1.5 ounces of Navy strength, 114 proof. There you go. Uh-huh. So he tried it. <laughs> he says, yeah, that's great, Ed. Go bottle it. <laughs> I don't want to bottle it. That's a pain in the butt. Uh, more labels, more you know things. Well, and you know, finally, you... a bartender in uh, D.C. at Archipelago said, "Ed, we can't trust our barbacks, uh-huh. and and they take turns being barback." He says, "You know, we've got a recipe. Okay, two to one. We guarantee somebody's going to screw it up." And do two parts, one fifty-one and one part Jamaican black. Right. And I said, "You're right. Okay, yeah. I'll go bottle it." So yeah. I bottled it. They're going but, to you because you're filling in all of those voids. Right. And and you're very well at at doing that. <laughs> well, so when you first taste the half ounce and one ounce, and you you probably got the one fifty-one in your bar too. I do. Yeah, so if you take half an ounce of the uh, 151 and one ounce of the Jamaican and put them together, it's not bad. Okay. But when I blend the two at 5 and 20 and dilute it over five days, I also changed, it also gave me the opportunity to change the ratio. So that's about 65% Demerara at 154 proof, 35% Jamaican at uh, 160 proof. Okay. So I blend the high proof in with the lower proof. Then we dilute those down over five days, and then we bottle it. The proportions are slightly different than if you do the half ounce and right, one right, ounce. Right, right, right. But I had the flexibility. I already had the two bulk rums, so I had the flexibility. So Jeff and I had collaborated on that, and uh, he was one of the tasters for the Pimento Dram that one took two and a half years wow. uh, to get it right. How hard can it be? It's only three ingredients. It's like making a martini, right? It's easy. Yeah. Well, to get the three ingredients right uh, took time. Okay. And, and I finally got that right. But then, you know, I said, okay, Jeff, what else do you need behind your bar? What else, What do you need? Oh, I needed the, he needed a white rum. He says, I need a good white rum. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's taste everything you got. Tell me what you love about them, and we'll go from there. And I did that exercise around the country, and everybody had the same answer. We don't like any of it. Yeah. Uh, we were looking for something, a certain flavor profile, and blah, blah, blah. And so we, I went through that with Jeff. So one night we were drinking daiquiris in his bar, and uh, I said, is there anything else? I'm not looking to do another product, but is there any other hole that's really missing in your bar? And he says, yeah, this uh, zombie thing, he says, it's driving me crazy because every time I get a new bartender, I have to train them and then watch over them and make sure that they follow the recipe. And then they're they're putting four different rums into a glass and the measurements are pretty close most of the time. Mm-hmm. But you know, if they're not really paying attention, he says, I would love to be able to have a blend that I could use in my bar uh, to bottle this. And in, in most states, it's illegal to uh, blend your own rum and put it in a bottle and say, you know, this is right. uh, 
right. so-and-so's blend uh, because it's not doesn't meet all the TTB regulations on labeling. But Jeff said, if, if I could have something for my bar, you know, I think it would be great to do it. And Zombie's a very popular drink in his bar. Yeah, yeah. And I said, but he says, I want something that's lower proof because the Zombie, if you blend the four rums together, it comes out, I don't remember exactly, 137 proof or something. Okay. It's okay. four ounces. Yeah. And he says, you know, he says, I'd really like to get something down to like two ounces and it can be a higher proof, uh, you know, than the typical 90 proof or whatever people are using these days, 85 or 80 proof. So we ended up at 118 proof. And But what he wanted was to capture the flavor of the zombie without all the filler gotcha. and get it down to something that. If you're a big guy like you or me, you could actually drink two of these. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you hand somebody a zombie, you better hand them the check because they're right, done. right, right. Yeah, I'm curious about also when you do this, like when you when you went through this process with Jeff, was he in the lab with you tasting? No. Okay. No. So what we did was, <laughs> it's a process. I put some numbers together and I told the blender in five and 20 where I, everything's blended. I said, okay, start with this and make up some samples. And we did different proofs and different uh, proportions of Jamaican rum, uh, Guyanese rum, the Demerara rum, and some rum from Trinidad. And then I've got some other rums uh, from uh, well, some white rum from Trinidad, from Guyana that we use. Uh, it's a bulk rum. And then I've got some stuff from the DR. So we looked at the different rums, tasted, blended them, tasted them, and then Joe would send samples to me and Jeff. Mm -hmm. And then once Jeff and I both got our samples and had time, because we couldn't do this, you know, every day, sure. uh, we would we would get on the phone, we taste them, get on the phone and say, yeah, we like this proof. We like this, uh, flavor profile, but, uh, you know, we want to change this or this or this. So Jeff would tell me what he wanted changed. I would make the changes. They'd be blended and that would take a couple of weeks and then it'd take another week to get the uh, samples and then we'd start over again. And Jeff would make zombies. We'd taste it straight. And then Jeff would make zombies, and mm -hmm. then we'd try to talk the next day or two, and he'd let me know how it worked in the zombie, okay, in the drink, in the cocktail itself. It was an involved process. It took a couple of years. I was going to say, think it was yeah, worth it. yeah, yeah, it's excellent. It's excellent, and and you know the thing is, it works. It works in more than just the zombie. You know, um, the problem that I have is I was having trouble finding it. I The only way I was able to get one in my bar is that a friend gave it to me for my birthday. And um, I can't remember where he found it, but he found, uh, I think he bought like four bottles. And um, one of them ended up in my bar. So I'm really happy about that. Well, it's getting better. Uh, classic beverage in California uh, has some inventory now. Mission has it. Um there probably isn't a mission close to you. I think that's um, where he found it was the mission in uh, Pasadena. Right. Mission in Pasadena has it. 
there's a few other places. Distribution's been a challenge, but the other challenge has been keeping it in stock. Yeah. So yeah. I've done a number of different products, and the White Stash, for example, um, is doing really well. I, I, I don't know the exact number, but mm-hmm. uh, on the order of, say, a 1,000 cases this year after three years. Okay. That's one I don't have yet, so I'm going to have to find that one. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty good. I like it. Okay. Um, so people were telling me we want a white rum, not 80 proof, no sugar, uh-huh. nothing added to it. We, you know, with a nice aroma and a nice finish and some rum flavor. And uh, I looked at things like the old Kanye Brava. Uh, I looked at the rum out of Barbados, the, the real McCoy three-year-old. Uh, that was one that popped up on the mm-hmm. radar. So it, several bars had it. Of course, Plantation Three Star, but people told me they didn't want it. Something with sugar in it. Uh, but Jeff nailed it when he says, and do not bring me anything else at 80 proof. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, 85 to 90 proof. So that one's 87 proof, and that worked out pretty well. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. But how many cases do you think would sell in the first month of that zombie blend with no advertising? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know what's, I don't know what's good or bad, uh, f- from a sales perspective, if I'm being honest. Right. Um, I just know well, that it was hard to get, it's hard to find and there's a high demand for it. Yeah. It, it outsold anything I've ever done. Oh, that's and great. And, it outsold what we expected to sell through the end of the year in the first six weeks. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Wow. (laughs) I printed 5,000 labels and that's 400 cases of rum. And I thought, yeah, that'll be good. Yeah. Give me time to get the product out there and check the label. So, you know, it's a process and, and you publish things. You, uh, you think you got it all right, and then you listen to it, or you sure, read sure, it later, yeah. and you go, "Oh shit, how yeah. did that slip?" Oh, that there? happens. Uh, that happens with every piece of media that I publish. Right. Yeah. So for me, let me do five thousand labels, which is a, a bigger number than I usually do on a new product. But I'll do five thousand labels, and then I'll sit down and look at the label printed on the bottle, and have a few cocktails. Mm-hmm and see what's wrong and then i'll fix it on the next batch Mm -hmm. well those five thousand labels or 400 cases of rum sold out in the first i don't know two weeks three weeks three weeks and so i had to print more labels and then i was waiting on labels and then i was waiting on bottles and then i was waiting on rum right (laughs) we literally went through everything that we expected to do by the end of the year Wow. Well, that's awesome. Now we're doing it in 750 bottles and liter bottles because the liter bottles are hard to get. Oh, okay. Okay. And liter bottles are more than uh, 30% more expensive than the 750s. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea for me is I want to be able to offer a small discount anyway on a liter. And if I can't, then I'll sell the 750s. Yeah, yeah. And the 750 bottles available. 
and the 750 bottle everybody recognizes you know it's a hamilton rum sure. i'm lucky that the capsules fit both the liter and the 750 bottle okay but with the bottle shortage uh i'm going ahead with 750s and i do have 750s in the market now yeah so uh we shouldn't have any uh shortages going forward and uh, that's my oh, that's goal good here news. in the new year we've got another product uh that jeff and i did that uh is a uh, navy grog and uh, we we debated on which which to do first the zombie or the navy grog and mm-hmm. if i said no the zombie is more complicated if we can get that right uh the, the navy grog would be a piece of cake and so we did the the zombie first um the Navy Grog will be a similar bottle, you know, same label. Okay. But when we first started talking about this, I said, you know, Jeff, I think if we're going to do this, we should make it available to other distributors and every, you know, to bars across the country. And we right. thought about it for a little bit and had another drink and decided it was a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. We had neither one of us had any idea or didn't really appreciate how many home bartenders, t- home tiki bartenders there are. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I'm one of them. And, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, there's a lot of them out there. And, and there's a lot of really good ones, you know, people yes. that have never worked in the industry as a pro, but, damn do they make good cocktails I, I i could name a few off the top of my head and um yeah you know uh your products are they just work so well like i think my favorite one out of all your products is the 86 it just filled well, that slot cool. so nicely that's one of my favorites my other favorite in that range you know of that style is the west indies blend it's a little softer on the palate. It's got some Jamaican mm-hmm. rum in there, and it's one that I mix all the time. Uh, the 86 is, if I'm going to introduce somebody to my rums, I'll, I'll start them with the West Indies blend. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, I call out the 86 by name when I'm having cocktails at the Tiki Tea. So, yeah, um, yeah I have them use that. <laughs> you and a lot of other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. Now, when you did your collaboration with the Florida Rum Society, was it similar to the process that you had with Jeff? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, it was, it was, well, it went much faster because there were only two components to that blend. Cause that's, that's an and, excellent one too. I love that. I just actually coincidentally as a, as a gift, I got one, uh, last week from a buddy at the Tiki T gave me a, gave me a bottle for Christmas, Wow, which nice I'm really stuff. happy about because I've had it. I think this is probably my third one. Um, and it's great over a giant rock. I mean, just by itself, it's delicious. Yeah. So what they were looking at is they wanted something that had more character than the West Indies blend. And I said, yeah, I can, I can do that. Uh, the West Indies blend was done for daiquiris. And a bartender group, actually a restaurant group in New York came to me while I was in New York one, one day before COVID. And they asked me, uh, they said, we, we want to do a private label. I said, okay, mm-hmm. what do you want? Well, we want to run for daiquiris. I said, hold on, guys. Daiquiris is a big word. Right. And these were big guys. 
but you know, professional Irish alcoholics. But <laughs> I said, so you know, where daiquiri? What do you want to start with? Let me start. I had a bottle of the Navy Strength with me, uh-huh. and I said, here, make a couple of daiquiris. There were four of us. I said, here, make four daiquiris with this, and then let's sit down and talk about it. Well, they made the, the bartender made the daiquiri, pouring two and a half ounces, I believe, as I recall, into the blender there or to the shaker. And I said, I really, in my mind, I really wanted to to stop him and say, you know, you don't need two and a half ounces of 114 proof rum, but I'm not the guy that's going to tell a bartender what to do. Sure. So, yeah. you know, you try it and we'll go from there. Well, they got their glasses and they said, Ed, this is perfect. I said, no, it's not. You guys are, you know, bigger than me. Uh, <laughs> professional Irish alcoholics. You right. can't be serving this. They're, make, you're, they're making Navy strength daiquiris. Yeah. If you want them to have a second drink. Right. And they said, you know, you're right. Yeah, we need to tone it down a little bit. Sure. So I, I got them down to 84 proof, and that became the New York blend. Gotcha. And then people okay. didn't want New York blend in places like Massachusetts mm. or Texas. So I did the West Indies blend, and that you know appeased everybody. Everybody except people in California because they didn't want to have to explain where the West Indies were. They could explain where New York was. You know, that thought never crossed my mind. But my first uh, thought when you said New York blend was that I didn't know that one. So, um, but no, you uh, know it. You know it as West Indies. As blend. West Indies. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, interesting. But interesting. To get to the West Indies from California is a long way. Sure. And you can probably name and spell half a dozen islands in Hawaii. Sure, yeah. How many islands in the Caribbean can you name and spell? Uh, all the ones that start with Saint. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're all American names. There's Saint John, Saint Martin, Saint Thomas, right? <laughs> right, Saint Kitts. Saint Kitts. Uh, right. Yeah, those are the easy ones. I mean,. You spent more time in the Caribbean than me, and so you could obviously be able to do that better than I can. <laughs> right, but uh, on the East Coast, people go to the Caribbean because it's easy. Sure, yeah. On the West Coast, you don't go to the Caribbean. No. It's a five-hour flight to Miami. Yeah. And a... then you got another two and a half to sure. Puerto Rico, and then on down, you know, if you want to go to Antigua, you can't, it's a full day to get to Antigua if you can even get there in a day. You probably can't even get there in a day yeah. from California. You have to spend the night in Miami and then go on from there. Yeah. So this, that one ended up being uh, 84 proof, but the Florida Rum Society wanted something with more character. So I changed that one to one-year-old wet Worthy Park rum. And it's a little different blend. It's a heavier rum than goes into the gold or the black. And it's a one-year-old. And then I blend some uh, Demerara in there. So I made some several different samples, I think three different samples. Uh, they wanted 90 proof. So that was a good starting point. We knew where we were going to end up on the proof. Okay. So something like uh, the zombie blend, we had no idea where what final proof we were going to end up at. Mm-hmm. It could have been anything from 109 to 139. Mm-hmm. And we kind of capped it at 139. We said, we're not going to go above that. 
right? You got to have some restraint. Yeah. Um, and it, it worked out well. We got down to 118 proof. Okay. But I sent them samples in Florida. Uh, they sent some samples around, broke it up, and sent them around to some of the people that were going to make the decision. And uh, we got on Zoom and talked about it. And they said, yeah, a sample. I think it was B, uh, that particular one. Okay. And uh, from there, they agreed that they believed that they could sell. Uh, and there was a liquor store involved in uh, Sarasota. They said, we believe we can sell a pallet. 56 cases uh -huh. so 56 cases is 600 and some uh labels actually 672 labels in order to print labels i need to do about 2000 minimum uh -huh. and i'm sure you've noticed all my labels are the same shape sure. well, the reason i do that is because i can combine all of the different labels for a print room so even though I only do, say, 2,000 of that particular label, I can combine it with Jamaican Black, the Gold, sure, the 86, sure. the 151, and I can come up with a number that's reasonable to print to keep the cost down. Right. Because, you know, you know, in printing, you'd pay an arm and a leg to print 672 labels. Yeah, and of course, because it's such a small run. But right. uh, also the uniformity of your labels is it creates that brand that brand recognition right so also from a marketing perspective for someone like me who is a little bit of a completist i'm not really like a completist per se but when i look at your brands or your products on the shelf it's easy for me to say oh i don't have that one and i got to get it because i want it to be with all the others right right yeah no it's it's the label's been a whole progression. Uh, my first labels on the on the original Jamaican black and gold, a friend of mine in New York told me they looked almost counterfeit. Oh, really? And I took that as a compliment. Uh, they sucked. They okay. sucked. Uh, but I got involved with a marketing company that uh, wanted to do my labels, and uh, it didn't turn out well. Okay. But... Uh, I started working with some other people and I did labels myself, the Pimento Dram label I did myself okay. on Photoshop. Okay. And I got lucky that that printed out well. Uh, that one, the labels were printed two years before it was actually bottled. Uh, I mentioned it took me two and a half years. So I thought, yeah, I'm ready to print labels. I'm, you know, got my TTB cola approval and I'm all ready to go. You know, the product will be six months. I'll have this sorted out. Yeah, two and a half years later, <laughs> I, I finally got a product. Right. Because I wanted the product always... to be right. Yeah, that's, and, that's just what you know, it you takes, get right? You one chance to shoot yourself in the foot with a new product. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Let me ask you, doing what you do and having been in this particular position, what you do for so long, how has your perspective of rum changed over the years? And what do you think is the future of rum, Boy. knowing all everything that you've gone through? Well, let me back up a little bit. 1997, uh, I was in a liquor store. The biggest liquor store in America at that time mm -hmm. was Sam's in Chicago. There were seven rums on the counter. Mm -hmm. Seven. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. El Dorado didn't come to the U.S. till about 2001. Mm -hmm. uh, there were uh, a 
bottle of Mount Gay, uh, Bacardi, Appleton, a bottle of Stubbs from Australia that they had brought in, and there was a bottle of Lemon Heart, and it said fresh colored rum. Mm. And the spirits buyer said, you know, Ed, I want you to uh, want you to help me bring in some rums. I want to have a list uh, like. I have over here in the wine section, I got wines of Italy, wines of France, wines of Spain, and I want to do the same thing with rum. And I said, okay, yeah, I, you know, I'll help you with that. Uh, I didn't have any idea how starved the U.S. was for rums. And I had a, an appreciation for rum for a long time. I grew up in Florida, grew up sailing. There was always rum around on race boats and sailboats. Okay. But when I got back to the U.S. and I was writing my second book, I really started to appreciate that there weren't a lot of good rums in the U.S. There was very little. Florida Kanye didn't come until uh, after 2001. And, you know, today we think of El Dorado and Florida Kanye as rums that are everywhere. Yeah, big yeah, ones. yeah. They didn't exist in the U.S. market. So... As I was going through the islands, I was amazed at how many different rums there were and, and how few there were in the U.S. And I didn't understand distribution and what a pain in the butt it is. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but the, the rum itself, I saw a real uh, change in the consumers not wanting or willing to accept anything for a while. And then they started to become more particular about what's in the rum. Uh, I saw, as you've seen over the last 10 years, we've seen all kinds of garbage being bottled as rum. And some of it doesn't taste or smell like rum at all. Mm -hmm. And we know those rums, but yeah. we don't drink them. Yeah. But they're still, they're selling more rum than I am. I mean, they're, they're pushing them out there. And... I think the that's going to change in the next 10 years. Okay. Uh, the TTB really doesn't have the resources and such to monitor everything that's going on. For example, there's some rums that uh, taste like Madeira wine. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, it's finished in Madeira cask. Oh, really? There's yeah. a whole lot more in there than 2.5% finishing taste yeah. uh, there's rums that that, that taste like cotton candy yeah. uh, there's no cotton candy in a barrel oh we use old whiskey barrels I go, really yeah i've never tasted a whiskey that tasted like cotton candy yeah there are rums that taste like cough syrup yeah and they've got 15 and 18 year old uh age statements on them but the TTB isn't in a position to really police what's going on. And I think it's going to take a couple of these rums to get called out. Yeah. And then there will be a slowdown or stop to it. How do you think COVID has affected the industry? Like going forward, do you think there are going to be regulations or anything like that that might be bad, good or bad? Do you foresee anything well, being affected yeah, COVID, by that? Well, COVID has slowed down the uh, government process of regulation. 
So there's more, there are still quite a few uh, labels being approved. There's a whole lot of whiskey labels being approved. There's a lot of, there's still a lot of new products coming to the market, but they don't have, the government doesn't have the resources or the ability to take samples. So years ago, right. they used to get samples of rums and, and all spirits off liquor stores and put it in a lab, run it through a lab and say, you know, this doesn't meet the, this is uh, too high or too low on the ABV. And if it's got too many conjurers in it or the wrong kind of conjurers, and they're looking for things like methyl alcohol. And if you're out of spec on that, they would shut you down. Um, that enforcement is almost stopped. Wow. Okay. I've been fortunate that the distributors that I work with, most of them, not all of them, but most of them have actually grown during COVID. Uh, and I think part of this is because of the home tiki bartenders. Sure. Uh, you know, they're buying more retail. My my sales of liter bottles last year was way down uh, compared to was what it was in 2019. But the sale of 750 bottles more than compensated for it. Okay. So this year, what are we, 2021, is my best year ever. And I expect next year to continue. Okay. The number one thing that I do is try really hard not to run out of product. And it's very rare that I'll be out of a product in the warehouse in New Jersey for more than a day or two, okay. three days, you know, something wow, like that's, that. Wow, that's, that, so you're managing that very well then. I'm trying. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you, if you run out of a product, uh, the bartender or the store is going to put something else in its place. Sure. And then you're going to have a hard time getting it back. Yeah, trying to get that spot back. Yeah, yeah. And I found out today that I lost distribution in half of California. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh. Everything north of San Luis Obispo. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry to hear that. Oh, God. Yeah, it sucks. Wow. The good news is that I have built a reputation and the brands have a reputation uh, that if I can find another distributor, you know, I can plug in. But people in San Francisco, for example, where I started importing, that was that was where I made my first sales 18 years ago. Yeah, They're not going to be able to get my rums for a few months. Oh, my God, what a bummer. I know San Francisco is uh, got a, a huge cocktail culture there that uses your products. So, yeah. wow. Yeah, that sucks. Well, I hope that gets resolved uh, sooner than later. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, all right. Well, I have some listener questions here. Just a couple short ones here. Number one, uh, from Boris Hamilton. He's a friend of ours, craft cocktail enthusiast. He just wanted to make a statement here. It's not really a question. Where he's his statement is that you've single handedly changed the landscape of rum and the co craft cocktail industry as a whole, and because of what you do. There's more rum carried in grocery stores and uh, and liquor stores than ever before, and he just wanted to say thank you for that. And it's that when we go into the grocery stores, we're not just seeing Bacardi, Captain Morgan, and Malibu. So that well, he's, he's making you. a statement I there. Can't take, I can't take credit for everything that's going on, and I won't even try. Uh, but I hope that I've helped raise awareness of better rums. I, I think that. At, and I'm, I'm going to get to this. This is coming at the end here. Um, 
but I think that you had a very huge role in changing the landscape of the way um, the way we we enjoy our cocktails today. I have another question here from uh, one of our listeners, Ross Aliotti. He's an admin of Tiki AZ. Uh, his question is, doctor says you can only drink one type of rum from now on. Which type do you choose? Wow. Uh, I would probably go with Nissan Blanc 105. Oh, group. interesting. Okay. Well, it makes a great tea punch, makes a great daiquiri. Um, you know, I love the aged trumps, but if I can only have one drink a day or one kind of rum, that's probably what I would go with. Um, I just love the rum. I fell in love with it in Martinique years ago. I fell in love with the tea punch. Uh, you know, I'm, I was disappointed when I just said, when I came to the States and found out I didn't, couldn't get the sugar, Yeah. but there's a complexity of purity there. Um, uh, I was watching somebody make a martini the other day on TV and they were talking about how simple it is. And I said, I thought to myself, wow, a tea punch is as simple, but it's hundred proof instead of 80 proof. And at the end of the day, when you want to drink, why screw around with 80 proof vodka that you're overpaying for? Oh, sure. Right. So yeah, that would, I've been asked that before and I've thought about it some, um, you know, I really like that. I, I used to be in love with Eldorado five-year-old, for example, uh, but they've added, it's a little sweeter. It's changed the profile. Uh, it's not as heavy as it is the one I remember or used to have. Uh, I'm sure they'll tell me nothing's changed and I'm just getting older and my taste buds have changed, <laughs> but I, I really like the hundred proof spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gives me more flexibility. I can pour less or more, you know, depending on how things are going or how you want it to go. Um, so that was that would be my first answer. Okay, great. Um, now I have my own questions that I'm going to be selfish about. Uh, th- I have three of them. First one: What's something about you that most people don't know? I think I'm an open book. I don't know what. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think I know, I don't want to say I think I know everything about you, but I've read a lot about you. And uh, we know we know the origin of um, you sailing in the Caribbean. We know how you went from, um, how you got into the rum business. Um, anything else? When we talked at Tiki Farm, one of the things that I learned is that if someone could play in you in, the, in a movie, you picked George Clooney. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, because George Clooney wouldn't do it. Uh, <laughs> all right. So we're going to skip this question because I think we probably have all the answers to that one. Uh, the second question is if you could start over, would you do anything different? Oh, I do many things differently. A- uh, any hard it, lessons it, that you learned over the years? Well, you're talking about in life or in, uh, uh, in the rum industry? In the rum industry. Yeah, I would probably do things differently. Uh, you know, I wouldn't have, well, I say I wouldn't start with rum agricole, but I, I was passionate about that, and that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I, would have, I would have had or tried to have a bigger portfolio, but it's a balance of money, time, uh, distribution. You know, today the distribution landscape is very different than it was 15 years, 18 years ago. 
18 years ago, there were very few tiki bars that you would go to other than Tiki sure, Tea sure. Uh, yeah. or Tonga Hut. Yeah. But uh, most of the other ones, uh, drinks weren't very good. Right, right. So, uh, you know, most people don't know probably that I, my last job in Asia was working on an oil rig in Papua New Guinea. Oh, that's interesting. So there's something that we don't know about you. That's interesting. That was the last place I worked. Okay. Wow. Okay. Okay. So my last of the three questions, what is on your bucket list? Oh, boy. Enjoy life to the fullest (laughs) every day. And I'm not rich. I don't have a lot of money. I got a, I got a lot of rum in inventory. <laughs> I got a lot of bills. Yeah. Um, you know, travel, I've traveled quite a bit all over the world, uh, on a shoestring. And, uh, so, you know, there's a few places I'd like to go, but traveling is a pain in the butt, uh, especially these days. Um, I've thought about flying, uh, being mm-hmm. a pilot, getting a pilot's license, okay. but I would be an amateur pilot. Sure. And I know a lot of people that have died over the years in small plane crashes. So okay. you know, I'm not really crazy about that. Okay. That's actually something that, uh, my girlfriend and I talk about occasionally is, you know, what are we going to do when, when we retire? And I said, well, why? I really don't want to retire. Yeah. Um, you know, I couldn't imagine not doing this. I mean, it's fun. I get to travel and as much as I want or as little as I want. I get to drink good rum, uh, meet interesting people all over the country and all around the world. Um, so I'm pretty happy. Uh, but I think the thing that most of us miss is really finding something every day that brings us happiness and brings someone else happiness. Yeah. And when we do that, then we're much more fulfilled and we live a better life. Yeah. We're happier. Yeah. We're going to be healthier. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's just something that, uh, is a goal every day. It's really easy to sit in front of a computer all day and be frustrated with the way things are going or not going. Sure. And, uh, you know, to, to be fulfilled to, and to help others be fulfilled, um, to give back and to help somebody. I try to help people that I meet along the way that are starting in the spirits business. And uh, some of them want some help and some don't. And uh, if they want help, I'll try to help them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to give them you know, all my secrets and money and everything else. Uh, but try to try to help people along the way. Uh, you know, people helped me and, uh, I love that. That's, that's something that, that I can do. It doesn't cost anything. Yeah. I love that. It's, it's such a positive perspective. Well, we can either be positive or we can be negative. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's amazing to me. Uh, one of the things that I do every time I have a, a drink at the end of the day is I try to taste what I'm drinking and say, how can I improve this? How can I make this better? And I can either be frustrated that, you know, it isn't exactly right, or I can be really happy that I'm in a position 
or in a place with a roof over my head mm-hmm. that I can have a cold cocktail with yeah. ice. Yeah. Uh, you know, how many millions of people around the world today don't have fresh water, don't have right. ice, right. or rum, or right. lime, or sugar. So, uh, you know, I, I've been charmed. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. Okay, before we wrap, is there anything that we can promote for you? Is it, Do you have a new product you want to promote? Are you working on anything at the moment that you can talk about that you want to get some attention to? Well, yeah, I really, I really hate to plug this, but I did. Please. I got another thing I got talked into uh, because people kept demanding it. I've just bottled a single cast strength collection of rums, and I have eight different marks. Uh, four, I think, from Guyana, a couple from Bar, or a couple from Jamaica, and one from Guyana or uh, Barbados. So I guess one from Barbados, five from Guyana, and two from Jamaica. Wow. And so I brought in barrels, and I bottled them all at cast strength. Oh, wow. And uh, it's a little bit different label. You'll recognize the bottle in the same shape of the label. But I'm looking at one, for example, right on the front of the label. It says 53.5% alcohol. Uh, this is barrel number 69, it happens to be. It says when it's distilled, April 2008. Wow. Bottled September 2021 from the Diamond Distillery, the Port Morant still in the market, and it's aged 13 years. Oh, wow. And, these sound uh, exciting. Yeah, I'm pretty happy about them. My goal in these was to have things that were less than $100, um, I'm seeing a number of private label things come out that are $150, $175 a bottle, and they don't tell you anything about them. Yeah, yeah. And, and when I talk to the, you know, they, they call me and want to get some information from me about how to promote it. And I go, well, tell me about it. What's in it? Where was it aged? How long was it aged? Where? What still did it come out of? Well, here we are. Right, right, right. And I said, well, then, you know, you don't really want to know. Uh, some of it is in Florida. There's six barrels already went to Florida. Another barrel went to Texas. Uh, I'm meeting some people tomorrow about some. So I'm going to sell some off as barrels because people okay. want barrels. Okay. But, but I really want to make it... Uh, and I'll, I'll let people, you know, stores that want to do that, do it. Okay. But then I will break up the rest of the barrels and uh, sell, it'll go by the case through distributors. Wow. So this is exciting. So where can people learn more about this? Uh, is Could they go to ministryofrum.com? No, go to Caribbean-Spirits.com. Okay. Actually, Ministry of Rum. I'm embarrassed. I haven't been able to keep that updated the way I'd want to. But there is a uh, link in the, up in the top left there, right under tops near the top left. Uh, it says uh, uh, collection or Hamilton Rums or something. I don't. I don't have my computer on. Okay. I'm done working for the day. We'll, we'll send people to the computer we'll, while we were talking. We'll but send people to there. Caribbean-spirits.com. Okay. Caribbean-spirits.com. We'll send people there. And, right, um, one, one R, two Bs, okay. and then at the top left there, it says uh, single cast strength collection, 
and then you can click on any of those marks and you can see pictures of the stills and details about the Brahms and pictures Perfect. of the labels. Perfect. We'll put a link in the description for our listeners as well so that they, they have a place where they can just click on it directly. Right, um, right. So they're available. They will be available in California. Uh, they're a little bits available in Texas. It'll be available in New York and Florida. Uh, there are people that are asking me, but right now is the worst time of the year for a new product to come out. Yeah. So, you know, the distributors are busy with their holiday stuff. Yeah, the retailers yeah. are busy with holiday stuff. And so I said, yeah, that's fine. You know, I, I've never been one to say I've got to have this by a certain date. Right. Um, I'll get it out when it gets out and then everything will follow from there. Right. Well, we only have a couple of weeks before the year changes and then we have a clean slate in front of us and all those products can uh can, can start getting out there. So um, that's just a couple of weeks away. Um, yeah, before we know it, we'll be into 2022 and yeah. uh, some new COVID variant. <laughs> right. <laughs> Crossing our fingers, we get back to normalcy sooner than later, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if I could, uh, I want to thank all your listeners for listening and uh, wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Some of you, many of you will probably listen to this uh, months from now. But uh, we're, like you said, we're doing this the end of December. Yeah, so well, I, I plan to put this run. out. I plan to put this out within the next week. So this will be out there before, uh, hopefully, hopefully before Christmas. So people can hear this during their Christmas break. Oh, great. Great. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate your thank time. Thank you. I want to. I, I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us because um, this is a, a discussion I've wanted to have with you for a long, long time. And I, now I'm going to get to the point that I've been saying that I've been teasing the whole episode: the butterfly effect. I, I'm a. I'm a person that you know. I'm, I'm fascinated by the butterfly effect. I look at someone like Don the Beachcomber who opened his little cafe in a hotel in Hollywood in 1933. And, you know, this guy was, I think, when he passed away, 1989, I believe it was. And um, he, because he opened this little cafe through the effect of this this butterfly effect, you and I, I believe, would not be talking today because Tiki is what brought me to rum. And I look back at the butterfly effect in your life to the point where you're old boss asked you what you wanted to do, made you write it down and made you make a plan to implement that within five years. And if he did not ask you that question, would we have all of these great rums and the way that you've affected the cocktail industry positively? So I want to thank your old boss as well. Yeah, Fred Kormansky. <laughs> and he's still living. Uh, we're still friends. I love it. Uh, oh, there you yeah, go. I, I haven't seen him in a few years, but I, I have. We have mutual friends, and uh, yeah, he's still around. I thank him every opportunity that I can. Uh, it really changed my life, but there were a number of people uh, in my life that you know helped me and helped me be a writer and uh, survive and you know do other things and yeah. give me the uh, confidence. I saw other people doing things that I just couldn't believe were possible. Uh, as one example, I met a couple of guys in Antigua years ago 
that read about Joshua Slocum being shipwrecked in Brazil and he built a 20 or 30 foot boat on the beach, launched it and sailed it with him and his family back to New York. Wow. So the two old English guys said, we're going to do that. They built a boat in England, sailed it to Brazil, and then they were on their way back to England. I met him in Antigua. One guy had one lung. The other one oh had one eye. Oh, my God. <laughs> they were in their seven, 60s, uh-huh. 60s, late 60s, early 70s. And when you meet people like that, you say anything is possible you if go. you've got the right attitude. There you go. There you go. Well, your boss not only changed your life, and in so doing, it changed all of our lives. And those of us that enjoy the products that you make and the cocktails that are made with them, because, uh, like you said, it wasn't that long ago where you walked into a into a liquor store and saw maybe five brands. Um, wow! I'm so, sure you've uh, got more than that on your bar at home. Oh, I've today. probably got seventy bottles of rum here, something like that. But thank you, thank you so much, Ed, for taking the time to speak with us on the podcast and uh, have a great holiday and a happy new year. And I hope to see you again soon. Yeah, I can't wait to to uh, cross paths in a dark bar somewhere. I'd love that. I'd love that. I'll be the tall guy. <laughs> awesome. You'll be the guy. Uh, you'll be the guy that I'll be um, sidling up next to at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks again. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you too. Cheers and aloha. Aloha.